A familiar sight at the time of Jesus was the sheepfold. Almost every green hill had a holding yard for sheep. They dotted the countryside all over Palestine. The shepherd would bring his flock at night to the shelter, to the sheepfold. There the sheep would be protected from the elements, from predators. Sometimes the sheepfold was a cave. At other times, it was a walled enclosure made of mud or thorn bushes. Most often, the tall walls around the sheep were piles of stone. The only way in and out of the sheepfold was a narrow passageway. And Jesus draws on this very common scene from daily life in John chapter 10. Let's begin in verse 1. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber, to scale the wall, to try to dig underneath, was unauthorized entrance. It was the tactic of a rustler. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. You see, it was common for several shepherds to use one fold. One pen would corral multiple flocks. A designated shepherd would then spend the night in the doorway to protect the sheep from intruders. And you see, sheep having a very an acute sense of hearing. They recognize voices. They remembered the voice of their shepherd. Thus, in the morning, all the shepherds had to do to separate their flocks was to sound out their distinctive call. The sheep would then start moving and sorting toward their shepherd. There's an interesting story from World War I. A Turkish group of soldiers, they stole some a flock of sheep from one of the Jerusalem's hillsides. The shepherds, of course, they couldn't overtake the soldiers, but they didn't have to. They retrieved their sheep by shouting out their distinctive call. And despite the effort of the thieves, the sheep heard the voice of their shepherd and came running to them. Sheep respond to the shepherd just as a Christian responds to the still small voice of Jesus. For Jesus says in verse 3, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Harry Lorraine, an author, the author of the memory book, was a famous memory expert. Lorraine would amaze his audiences by going out into the crowd and in just a few minutes meet hundreds of people. The folks would then parade back in front of him one at a time while he recalled each person's name. It was an amazing feat. But Jesus puts the memory experts to shame. For he knows billions of believers by name. He even knows your name. And his memory isn't fueled by some clever technique, but by a deep love he has for each of us. Jesus is our good shepherd. He's all these things and more to us that the shepherd was to his sheep. And Jesus is the one who's at the sheepfold. In other words, you can't get into the sheepfold unless you come through the door, and that's Jesus Christ. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Remember the blind man in chapter 9? He had never seen Jesus' face, but he recalled his voice. Likewise, you and I have never seen the face of Jesus, but we've learned to recognize his voice. I hope you have. When we walk with him, 
We know how he speaks to us. Sheep know their shepherd's voice. I heard of a New York fire. A blind little girl, she was trapped on the fourth floor of an apartment building that was up in flames. There wasn't enough room to use their ladders, so the firemen, they stretched out a net below her, and they told her to jump to safety. But she couldn't see the net, and she refused to budge. Just in the nick of time, her father drove up to the burning apartment building. He raced to the base of the building, and he shouted to his little girl to jump, and she did. But it was only because she recognized her father's voice. And from time to time, a Christian's faith demands that he or she take a leap of faith. Often we can't see into the future, but when we hear our Father's voice, we can jump. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. You know, the only time a sheep will follow a stranger is when they're sick. And the same is true for a Christian. Finally, verse 6, Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. And there's one other attribute of a sheep. Sheep are not very bright. And again, the disciples are acting like sheep, dumb sheep. Well, then Jesus said to them again, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. Now again, an ancient sheepfold, it had no doors per se, no gates. The shepherd was its door. His body was the barricade. Once the sheep were all corralled and tucked in, the shepherd would then lay over the threshold and he would stay between the sheep in any potential danger. In other words, the shepherd was saying, you'll harm these sheep over my dead body. And there's only one entrance into God's sheepfold. We must come through Jesus Christ. He was willing to lay down his life for us. You get into the sheepfold over his dead body. Jesus says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And this is so beautiful. He doesn't just protect us from the evil outside, but he pastures us. He feeds us. He gives us what we need. He helps us grow and be satisfied. You know, pastures in Palestine, they aren't these huge, flat grazing lands that you find out in Texas. Sometimes when we think of a pasture, that's what we envision. Most of Israel, especially around Jerusalem, is rocky. It's mountainous. And they're tiny little pockets of pasture that lie between steep slopes on both sides. Ample supplies of grass are often hard to come by. That's why it takes a skilled and caring and experienced shepherd to find pasture for his flock. And likewise, we live in a barren world, don't we? Not a lot of pasture in this world. Only tiny little pockets here and there. And that's why we need to come to Jesus. Spiritual pasture is hard to come by, but our good shepherd knows our needs. And he is able to satisfy his sheep if we graze where he tells us. Well, verse 10 gives us some important words. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. 
The thief does not come but to steal and to kill and to destroy. And this is Satan's desire for you. He has one motivation for you. He wants to steal, rip you off, kill the life out of you, and destroy you. And whenever you're tempted to steer away from God's will, notice this is the direction you're headed. You're headed toward destruction. On the other hand, Jesus promises, I have come that you may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. What a contrast. The thief only has sinister desires for you, whereas Jesus, he wants to give you life and life more abundant. The Greek term is superabundance. There's no limit to the blessings that Jesus has for those who want to follow him. Once there was an old man, he was making his first drive over the Rocky Mountains. He was in a 1946 Ford. The steep grade took its toll on the motor. It overheated, forcing the man to stop several times. The trip was quite stressful. He eventually made it over the mountains, but he didn't enjoy the ride, and he could have cared less about the scenery. Recently, though, that same man, he made another trip over the Rockies, this time in a brand-new Ford 150 pickup truck. The motor purred like a kitten as it climbed the, the highest peaks and hugged the curves. This time there was no apprehension. The man's trip was fun. In fact, several times he stopped to admire the panoramic views. Hey, without Jesus, life is this man's first trip. In Christ, it's like his second. You know, the terrain doesn't change. Everyone's life is full of steep stretches and sharp curves. But with power under the hood, you run better. You're less likely to overheat when there's refreshment. Again, the challenges remain, but when you're traveling with Jesus, you enjoy the journey. Jesus tells us, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep, and he flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling. He does not care about the sheep. The hireling, the hired hand, so to speak, is only in it for a paycheck. He takes no ownership. He has no investment of his own resources in the sheep. He lacks commitment, and as a result, he splits at the first sign of hardship or danger. Whereas the shepherd loves the sheep, they're his sheep, and thus he's willing to sacrifice for them. He's willing to put himself in harm's way to protect his sheep. You know, the term pastor is actually a Latin word which gets translated shepherd. And a pastor is a shepherd. A good pastor is like a shepherd. He loves the sheep, and he takes responsibility for the sheep. In fact, he's willing to sacrifice for the sheep, even endanger himself to protect them. He's accountable to Jesus for the state of the sheep. And yet, sadly, too many pastors are nothing but hired hands. They work only for a paycheck, and when the going gets rough, they bolt, and they abandon the sheep. You know, some pastors, I think, start out wanting to be shepherds, but they're treated like hirelings for so long, they now act the part. 
I think if a congregation wants a real shepherd, they should let their pastor lead. They should let him be a shepherd. They need to trust him. They need to treat him like a shepherd, not like a hired hand. Well, Jesus says it again in verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. These other sheep that Jesus is referring to here are the Gentiles, are you and me. You know, he's speaking initially to Jews, but eventually the Gentiles will join. They'll believe the gospel and join the flock of God. Now the one flock is both Jews and Gentiles, and Jesus is the one shepherd over us both. Therefore my Father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. And I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. And I'm sure the disciples didn't quite understand the ramifications of those words. Not yet, but they will. Realize the crucified Christ was not a victim. Not a victim at all. Jesus willingly laid down his life. And three days later, he willingly took it up again. Jesus was the good shepherd who willingly and voluntarily sacrificed his life for the sheep. You know, it's ironic. Under the old covenant, the sheep were sacrificed for the shepherd. Whereas under the new covenant, it's the shepherd who became a sacrifice for the sheep. Jesus, the good shepherd, became the sacrifice who was sheared and slain so his sheep could be saved. Verse 19 sheds light on the discussions that followed the healing of the blind man in chapter 9, what we've just read. Therefore, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, He has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of a blind? The miracle had left the Jews divided over what they thought of Jesus. They debated, Is he of God? Is he of Satan? Well, verse 22. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Now the feast of dedication, it goes by some other names. Sometimes it's called the Feast of Lights. Most often today it's called Hanukkah. It occurs on the Jewish calendar in the month of Chislev, which parallels our December. This is the feast that overlaps with the Christian celebration of Christmas. Hanukkah was not one of the seven feasts ordained by God in the Old Testament. It was added later to commemorate the rededication of the temple during the period between the two testaments. I'll give you the background. In 167 BC, the Syrian tyrant, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, he invaded the land of Israel on December the 25th. He erected a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies, and he offered a pig on the altar in the Jerusalem temple. It was a desecration, and it infuriated the Jews. It prompted them to fight back, take up arms. And over the next three years, the family of the Maccabees, Judas, Judas the Hammer, led a guerrilla revolt against Antiochus and his troops. They eventually drove out the Syrians and their idols 
on December the 25th, 164 B.C. Judas Maccabeus, he entered the temple and he cleansed it of its defilement. And as part of the restoration, Judas went to relight the temple's menorah, its sacred menorah. The problem, though, is he found only enough oil for it to burn for one day. And yet God worked a miracle to celebrate this restoration. God caused that single day's portion of oil to burn for eight full days. And to this day, the eight days of Hanukkah centers around this miraculous lighting of the ancient menorah. Now, the rest of the dialogue here in chapter 10 occurs during the Feast of Dedication, which took place about two and a half months after the healing of the blind man in chapter 9. Verse 23, And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Now, remember it was wintertime. In Solomon's porch was the long roof-covered colonnade just south of the temple's holy place. Winter in Jerusalem can get drizzly. It can get very cold. It was definitely time to put on your thermal robes. And I'm sure you know what the Apostle John was wearing at the time. I'm sure you know this. He was wearing long johns. Well, of course he was. The Apostle John needs to stay warm, so he wears long johns. Solomon's porch provided Jesus a little shelter from the elements. Well, then the Jews, they surrounded him. Literally, they hemmed him in. They cornered Jesus, and they said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? In other words, will you stop beating around the bush? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And of course, this was a silly assertion. You remember back in chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus had said, Before Abraham was, I am. Rather than beating around the bush, he had claimed to be the voice speaking from the burning bush. He claimed to be God. Jesus hadn't shied away from the question of who he was. He had boldly claimed to be God. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Isn't those beautiful words? What a comforting promise to you and me. Nobody can snatch us from the Father's hands. Reminds me of the Allstate insurance slogan, you're in good hands. And you're in good hands with Jesus. Hey, if Jesus has you in his grasp, nobody can pluck you out. Jesus never gets stripped. Unlike Tom Brady back in that Super Bowl, Jesus never fumbles away what's in his hands, never. If you're in Jesus' hands, you're in good hands. Notice, too, Jesus says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. And then he says, no one can snatch you out of my Father's hands. Notice, you see that? It's as if Jesus' hands and the Father's hands are the same hands. And they are. 
He leaves no doubt about it in verse 30, for he utters what at the time was a shocker. I and my father are one. You Jews, you want it straight? Well, this is as straight, this is about as clear as it's ever going to get. The father and the son are one. Yes, he's God. The father and the son are two persons, but they are one substance. They are one. You know, the Bible reveals that there is one God who exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Throughout the Old Testament, God's plural nature was clearly taught. As far back as the creation, God had said, let us make man in our image. Notice this, the one true God had spoken of himself by using plural pronouns, us and our. And yet the Jews failed to recognize the triune nature of God. They didn't grasp his sonship. Thus they said Jesus was guilty of blasphemy and deserving of death. And in verse 31, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. This is the second time they're so mad that they're on the verge of assassinating him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? <laughs> now, what have I done to deserve to be executed? I've worked miracles. I've helped. I've healed. For what work do you want to stone me? The Jews answered him saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. You see, again, the Jews were blind to the Old Testament revelation that Messiah would be the God-man, that he would be fully God and fully man. This is why Jesus takes them back here to Scripture. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? And here he quotes Psalm 82, verse 1. He continues, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. And let's kind of interrupt the thought here just a minute. Notice the parentheses. Obviously, Jesus believed in the authority and reliability of the Bible, for he says the scripture cannot be broken. And you can attack it. You can ignore it. You can deny it. You can try to refute it. But the Bible eventually wears you down and wins you over. It's been said the Bible is an anvil that has broken many hammers. It cannot be broken. But why beat on the Bible like an anvil? Why not use it as a foundation? If it's that strong, why not build on it? And your life will never be broken. It'll last forever. The Bible is a solid rock. Now back to verse 35. Jesus says, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now realize what he's saying here. In the verses that Jesus quoted, Psalm 82 verse 1, God is rebuking Israel's judges. You can go back and read it. In that chapter, God is rebuking Israel's judges. As a matter of fact, the very next verse, verse 2 of Psalm 82 implies, it says this, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? In other words, he, again, he's addressing the, the human judges that were alive at the time. 
In context, these judges are clearly human, yet they are called gods with a little g because they represent the one true God with the capital G. These men were gods only in the sense that they stood in his place and they issued his verdict. And thus Jesus is saying that if the psalmist ascribed the term gods with a little g to these wicked men, then why would it be wrong for him, the real son of God, to use the term to describe himself? Follow his reasoning? Sadly, there are cults, though, who twist chapter 10, verse 35, out of context, and they use the verse to justify the deification of believers, that humans can become gods to the same extent that God is God. That's blasphemy. It's a gross misinterpretation of this verse. If you're a God in the Psalm 82 sense or in the John 10, 35 sense, then you're making yourself a wicked judge. And you're putting yourself in line with God's judgment. I wouldn't want to use that verse to apply to myself. Well, in verse 37, he continues. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works. That you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Jesus says, don't just listen to my words. Examine my works. He had made bold claims that the Jews saw as blasphemous. But had those claims been validated by his works? Yes. His works had backed up his words and had proved that he was God. Yet verse 39, Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand, and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. And this is a site that we always visit When we go to Israel, it's down near the Dead Sea. It's the place where John baptized. It's the place here where Jesus uh, took refreshment. It's a wonderful little site down in the Jordan River. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. Apparently, the very location reminded the people of John in his testimony of Jesus And now that they could see that what John had said of Jesus had come true, they believed in him. Jesus had just challenged his critics to examine his words by his works. And now in chapter 11, Jesus does one of his greatest works. A certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Now understand, Bethany was a suburb of Jerusalem. It's actually on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. If you notice the map, it's on the very far right-hand side. Pilgrims would always pass through Bethany on their way up to Jerusalem. And it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was sick. And here John is kind of getting ahead of himself a little bit. He identifies this Mary with an event of which he has yet to write about, but he will, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, he'll recount Mary's extravagant act of worship, and we'll marvel when we read it. His point here, though, is that this is the same Mary. Well, therefore, the sisters sent to him, saying, 
Lord, behold, he, he whom you love is sick. Now, evidently, Jesus had a special affinity for Lazarus. Apparently, the two men were friends. Notice they don't say here, he who loves you. Though I'm sure Lazarus did. But the women say, he whom you love. I like that. You know, the real distinctive trait about a Christian is not that we love God. Who wouldn't love God when you see God for who he is and you realize that God is so lovable? Who wouldn't love God? No, the amazing thing is that God loves us. That we are all he whom God loves. That's pretty amazing. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This was also what Jesus had said about the man born blind. Jesus doesn't cause suffering, but he uses tragedies to showcase his glory, and that is what he's about to do here. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now, wait a minute. That's a strange way to show somebody that you love them. They're sick, and it's within your power to do something about it, and yet you drag your feet for two more days? What's the deal? Realize human love and God's love act very differently. Human love coddles. Human love rushes in to alleviate any twinge of suffering. Yet God's love is more powerful. God's love turns ashes into beauty. Thus, God's love is able to wait at times. God's love is not a pampering love, but a perfecting love. He doesn't shelter us. He forces us to face life head on. See, faith doesn't get stretched without some tension. You know that, don't you? Faith can't get stretched without some tension. Character isn't forged except through struggle. Change doesn't grow apart from challenge. Conviction doesn't crystallize unless there's under pressure. And Jesus has lessons to teach those that he loves and that love him. Thus, his love often waits. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? The disciples were afraid for Jesus' life. Probably were worried about their own lives too. And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. As long as you are walking in God's light, you can't stumble. Jesus isn't afraid. His time has not yet come. It's God's will for him to go to Bethany, and so God will guard, God will guard him. Verse 11. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. They figured Lazarus is just ill. He could sleep it off. Just get some rest. He'll be fine. However, Jesus spoke of his death 
but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Again, the disciples were on a different frequency, weren't they? I mean, Jesus was speaking figuratively. They were thinking literally. And then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Sleep is a familiar idiom in the scriptures for death. Actually, it's a similar idiom in some secular literature as well. Often, sleep is depictive of death. Jesus used this idiom once before, remember, when he entered Jairus' house. He told the mourners, the girl is not dead, but sleeping. Of course, the Jews laughed at him. The girl had no pulse. Her body had turned cold and blue. Her eyes had rolled back into her head. What do you mean she's just sleeping? But Jesus wasn't debating her autopsy. He was anticipating a miracle. He knew the girl's condition was temporary. You see, sleep is a fitting analogy for death, for sleep and death are both temporary. In sleep, our body slows down while our minds remain active. And in death, our body might stop, but our spirit lives on. They're very similar. In a sense, death is a temporary, as temporary as sleep. As the poet puts it, sleep is but a short death. Death is but a longer sleep. The resurrection will be the last wake-up call. There, everybody will awake to a new body, either fit for eternal life or fit for eternal punishment. Sleep was a popular analogy for death among early Christians. Believers referred to their burial sites as resting houses. By the way, our English word cemetery, you know what it literally means? Sleeping place. Death is not final. It's simply the foyer of eternity. The grave has a door on the inner side. And Jesus uses this occasion to prove this point. Verse 15. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. This was doubting Thomas, living up to his nickname, no doubt. Certainly, Thomas was devoted to Jesus. Nobody can question that. He's ready to die for Jesus. He's the proverbial sailor willing to go down with the ship. Problem with Thomas, he just doesn't have a lot of faith. Did you hear about the optimist who was decided to take the pessimist deer hunting? Duck hunting, I'm sorry, duck hunting. The op- Let's start, try that again. Did you hear about the optimist who decided to take the pessimist duck hunting? Did you hear about this? He really wanted to show off his new hound dog. Well, the pessimist, he took one look at the dog and he sort of frowned. He said, it looks like a mutt to me. Pretty soon a flock of geese flew overhead. Bam, bam. Two fell right in the middle of the lake. The dog took off, ran right out on top of the water, walked all the way to the top of the water, grabbed the two ducks in its mouth and came right back across the surface of the water. The optimist stuck out his chest, asked his friends, he said, now what do you think of my dog? The pessimist said, your dumb dog doesn't even know how to swim. (laughs) And that was Thomas. Always negative. His cup was always half empty rather than half full. 
Now, it's interesting. Notice this. It's interesting. Thomas is also called what? The twin. Apparently, he had a twin sibling. And he or she might just be here tonight. Might just be here tonight, that twin. Are you a negative person? Are you like Thomas? Always looking on the dark side rather than the bright side? Hey, do you wake up in the morning and greet the new day? Good Lord, it's morning. Or do you say, good morning, Lord? How do you greet the day? Realize when you travel with Jesus, there's always a bright side. Don't be a doubter like Thomas. Verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Jesus had been in Bethabara, east of the Jordan River, about 20 miles away. It took Martha's messenger a day to reach him. Once he got the message, Jesus waited two days Then it took him a day to walk back to Bethany. This all means that Lazarus had died shortly after the messenger departed. When that messenger got back, Jesus' message, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, had to seem like an empty promise to him. For Lazarus wasn't now just sick. Now he was dead as a doorknob. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Mary was still emotional. She was the more emotional sister, and so she was still mourning. Martha was the one who went to meet Jesus. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Notice what she's accusing Jesus of, a missed opportunity. Martha had a strong faith. She had no doubt that if Jesus had come in time, he could have saved her brother's life. But he had delayed. He had missed the opportunity. Martha's about to learn that Jesus never misses opportunities. He just has his own timetable. Martha's faith was strong, but here it's struggling She wants to believe that Jesus can still perform a miracle. But this is no longer a mere illness. This is no longer a feeble fever. The king of death has now choked the life out of her brother. Martha believes in healing. She's seen Jesus handle fevers before. But is her faith big enough? Is it bold enough? Is it brave enough to tackle the grim reaper? And so she says to Jesus... But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, oh, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. (laughs) She's still struggling. She's still struggling. Notice this. She believes in the doctrine of resurrection. She has correct theology. She agrees, our bodies, Lord, will live again. I agree with that. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. In the Greek, verse 26 is a double negative. It literally reads, shall never, never die. Jesus is asking Martha, do you really believe this, Martha? This is so applicable to us. Please listen. Martha believed a doctrine. But does she believe in Jesus? She makes a statement of faith in verse 24. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But real faith is more than just words. It's more than just a statement. You can believe in the right doctrines. You can quote the correct creeds. But when was the last time the power behind the doctrine jumped off the page and got a hold of your mind and your heart and your hands and your feet? Like Martha, you believe in the resurrection. One day, yet future. But right now, do you believe that Jesus will resurrect a dead joy or a dead dream or a dead marriage or a dead ministry? You believe that Jesus created the heavens and the earth. But what about his creative power in the hopeless situation you face right now? When Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, he is taking truth off the page and he's putting it in a person. I am the resurrection. He's taking truth out of the realm of doctrine and putting it into the realm of relationship. He's moving it out of the future and he's putting it into the present. Do you believe? Real faith is more than a matter-of-fact statement. It's reliance on a person. And Jesus asks Martha, and he asks us, do you really believe? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Martha tries to sidestep the real question. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And again, Mary echoes Martha's earlier faith. Their faith is in the same shape. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. The expression means a deep-seated anger. More than distress, Jesus was mad. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Verse 35 records a monumental moment. The day God cried. The day God cried. Jesus wept. But why did he cry? And there were various theories. 
Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Some folks figured he was grieving for a lost loved one. Other folks thought he was upset because he'd arrived too late. To me, none of these theories fit the facts. I believe Jesus cried not because of what death did to the person inside the tomb, but because of what death had done to his followers outside the tomb. Jesus' men, his disciples, had let the grim reaper walk right into their lives and strip them of everything they held precious. They had allowed a vile, wicked enemy rip off their joy and faith. They had handed over their hope and happiness without even a struggle. It was a pathetic scene, enough to make you cry, enough to make God cry. Verse 38. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. And I like the Old Testament. You can't can't get any better than this. The Old King James, not the Old Testament, the Old King James Version. I love how it renders it. Martha says, Lord, by this time, he stinketh. (laughs) And indeed he did. Lazarus smelled like the leftovers that had sat too long in the refrigerator. It's interesting. Superstitious Jews believe that a dead person's spirit hovered over its body for three days. But after three days, deterioration had grown to a point where Any hope of revival or resurrection of life returning was gone. Thus, if anyone at Lazarus' tomb had embraced this notion by the fourth day, all hope had been abandoned. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And can you imagine what it would have been like to have been there? I mean, of all the stories in the Bible, this is one where I really wouldn't have wanted to be there. You know, Can you imagine being there to witness this firsthand? And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he had said these things... He cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And it's been pointed out that if Jesus hadn't specified Lazarus, every corpse and every graveyard in the world would have come bounding from their tombs. I believe that. Realize this was Lazarus' first funeral, but it would not be his last. He was resurrected to die again. But in light of what happened this day, I am sure his second funeral was a much different situation and a much different celebration. No one present for Jesus' miracle here would ever see death quite the same again. No longer would death ever be seen as final, but as transitional. No longer as a burial, but as a birth. No longer as a loss, but as a promotion. On this day, Jesus took the fear, took the sting out of death. 
Death became a reason for gladness, not sadness, from this day onward. Verse 44, Lazarus is alive. He's bounded from the tomb. Verse 44, and he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Notice Lazarus was alive, but he was bound. He had new life, but he still wore grave clothes. And this is the predicament of every single believer in Jesus. We are resurrected spiritually when we give our lives to Christ. We become recipients of new life, but the attitudes and the habits and the thought patterns of the past remain. We're alive, but we're still wearing those old rank grave clothes. And notice, though Lazarus, though Jesus gave Lazarus new life, he didn't free him from the shroud. That wasn't Jesus' job, apparently. For Jesus assigns that responsibility to Lazarus' friends. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. And today it is the church's job to help the new believers shake free of their bondage. Jesus gives us new life. But then we have to come alongside that new believer and help them develop a new mind, renew their minds, and shake off those old habits and put on Christ. We need to help our fellow believers swap grave clothes for grace clothes. And how do we do that? By getting involved in each other's lives and provoking each other to godliness and helping each other, discipling each other. This is how we do it. Verse 45, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. And some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. And I love how Peterson paraphrases the Pharisees here. He says, What do we do now? This man keeps on doing things, creating God's signs. Just about the time the jealous Jews had discredited one miracle, Jesus had worked another. Damage control was getting more difficult for these Jews. And notice the term used for Jesus' miracles, God signs. I like that, God signs. Remember, this is why Jesus worked miracles, to prove he was God. Everyone Jesus healed succumbed to illness later. Everybody Jesus healed eventually died. You realize that? Everyone he raised from the dead died a second time. His miracles were never intended to alleviate all human suffering. Jesus was not out to end the funeral business. Even today, his miracles have a message They are God's signs. His power reveals his person and his promises. And when he works a miracle, it's to teach us a lesson about himself. Not not just to alleviate our problem at the moment. So many of us, we, we miss the miracles. We waste the miracles because we rejoice. Oh, look what happened to me. But we don't learn the lesson that he was trying to teach us. Verse 48, the priests continue to plot. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And here is why the Jews hated Jesus. He was a threat to their power and their prophets and their position. 
He was a political threat. The Jewish aristocracy had an arrangement with the Romans. You scratch our back, we'll scratch yours. The Jews cooperated with Rome while Rome propped up the Jews. And Jesus was upset in the status quo. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. And Caiaphas' words become an accidental prophecy. For John writes, Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Caiaphas was a wicked man pronouncing a death sentence, but God used the high priest to prophesy our salvation. It's ironic. The Jews put Jesus to death to save their own skin And in reality, he saved the whole world. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews. He knew their plans. But went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. And there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. It seems the chief priests had gone so far as to put a bounty on Jesus' head. And it's sad that one of his own disciples would be the person to collect. And that's what we'll study next week.